Okay, hello everybody. Today is Monday, another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that there is now a regular series on this channel coming out every Wednesday about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, and it is talking about the story of the Phantom Killer, an unidentified serial killer from 1946, who committed a rather similar crime spree to that of the Zodiac Killer. One more time, those episodes will be coming out on Wednesdays here on this channel, so if you have not subscribed to Black Box Online Radio, I invite you to do so so you can follow along with all of these true crime discussions, including the Anything Goes Friday, where any subject is fair game. But I have just sort of a recommendation, rather, for the next thing. Not exactly Zodiac Killer news, but Tom Voigt sent me a link to an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Season 9, Episode 1 did a feature on the Zodiac Unabomber connection, and it even features a brief interview with Douglas Oswell, who is the author of The Unabomber and the Zodiac. And I know that these events are terrible. The Zodiac and the Unabomber were both serial killers, some people use the term serial murderers, but, I mean, really watching that, it just felt like music to my ears, and again, I know I shouldn't find any type of entertainment in this process, but just that a mainstream broadcast was paying attention to a different type of Zodiac Killer theory, it isn't even the entertainment factor, it's the open-mindedness that I thought was very valuable and one more time, you can watch that here on YouTube, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Season 9, Episode 1 does a special on the Zodiac Unabomber connection. The idea that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was also the Zodiac killer. And later on in the broadcast, I will be talking about some of the claims from Mark Hewitt, who is the author of Hunted, Profiled, and Exposed, three books about the Zodiac Killer, and a different supporter of the Zodiac Unabomber connection, as opposed to Douglas Oswell. But I would like to begin with something that multiple people had requested, and this had come from at least three different people who made a recommendation that I do a response to a video from the channel Unsolved No More, which is hosted by Ken Maines. He was made famous for the History Channel TV show The Hunt for the Zodiac Killer, and he now runs his YouTube channel Unsolved No More, and he has been a detective for ages. I have to be very clear with you guys, I was not a fan of the Zodiac Killer show on the History Channel, but watching Ken Maines on YouTube, um, I think that he gives a much better presentation because he's doing it on his own terms and he talked about how on the History Channel he was provided suspects along with his partner Sal. They were provided suspects such as Ross Sullivan and Lawrence Kane and that was the direction that the show wanted to go. But when he's sharing things that he genuinely thinks and talks about his experiences as a detective and his experiences with cold cases and just what it was like when he was reading the reports and talking to the detectives, I found that those conversations were much stronger. But to talk about the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, which occurred on October 30th of 1966, some people think that it was Zodiac-related, that it was the first crime committed by the Zodiac Killer. Uh, there are other people out there who believe that the Zodiac Killer was a very prolific serial killer who began perhaps as early as 1962, maybe as early as 1946 with the Phantom Killings, or I should call them the Texarkana Moonlight Murders committed by the Phantom Killer. And then there are people who think that the Zodiac only operated in 1968 and 69 because those were the crimes that 
the Zodiac took credit for and provided evidence and reasons about how he was able to commit those crimes, such as um, the Lake Herman Road murders and the Blue Rock Springs shooting, the first two crimes, writing a letter saying, I shall state some facts that only I and the police know. Then with the Lake Berryessa stabbing, writing a message on the car door um, nearby the crime scene, with the Zodiac symbol and the dates of Zodiac activity, then with the Stein murder on October 11th of 1969, cutting off a piece of the victim's shirt and mailing that in with a letter, multiple letters actually, to prove that he was indeed the killer. And I believe it was Richard Grinnell of ZodiacCiphers.com who said that the Zodiac was begging people to believe and understand that he committed the crimes of 1968 and 69, the ones that I was just talking about, whereas with the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, which occurred on October 30th of 1966, there's a loose allusion to it in one of the Zodiac letters. I'll give you credit for stumbling upon my Riverside activity, but you're only getting the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. There are not facts stated that only he and the police would know. There is not a piece of the victim's clothing or some type of trophy that was taken that was mailed in. And there was not any type of Zodiac symbol left at the crime scene. And as far as we know, the Zodiac killer didn't even exist in 1966 when Sherry Jo Bates was murdered. The first point is that um, from Ken Maines' show, Unsolved No More About Sherry Jo Bates, is that... He is a supporter of the Bates letter hoax. That was one thing that I took away. After the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, there were three pieces of writing that were mailed in. The Riverside Confession, the Bates Had to Die letters, and the desktop poem, although they didn't come in that order. The Riverside Confession was mailed in November of 1966. The desktop poem, which I was discussing last week on the channel, was discovered in December of 1966. And there were three letters that said Bates had to die or she had to die, there will be more, that were mailed in the spring of 1967. And Ken Maines more or less said flat out that, yeah, somebody confessed to uh, fabricating the Bates had to die letters that were mailed in the spring of 1967. He made the confession in 2016 saying that he was a troubled teenager, he did it as a sick or twisted prank, and that they extracted touch DNA from the letters and that the authorities had more or less determined that he was not the Zodiac nor the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates. And that is the um, end of the story. I'm really bringing this up because I know that there are people who follow this show who frequently talk about this in the comment section about how they do not agree with that. They think that the Bates had to die letters that are signed with what appears to be a Z or maybe a 32 or maybe a letter of the Theban alphabet are authentic, and they believe that not only was were they written by the killer, the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates, but that person went on to become the Zodiac Killer. And I'll say some more about that later on in the episode. But another point that was brought up by Ken Maines is that when you look at contemporary photographs of the place where Sherry Jo Bates' body was found, it shows that it is a paved alleyway near the RCC, the Riverside City College Library. And when the murder occurred in 1966, that actually would have been a dirt alleyway. And that's important because even with dirt in the alley, he said that there was a type of plant matter, like a botanical substance, more or less, underneath her fingernails or on her body that just simply should not have been there. 
because again, it's not like a grassy alleyway, it's just a dirt stretch of space, and he thought that that was just very, very perplexing. But I also thought it was very interesting that um, Ken Maines had talked to Sherry Joe's brother, and I I really just felt that um, he often gets left out of this, her brother Michael, he often gets excluded from these discussions because most people talk about the relationship that Sherry Joe Bates had with her father, and then they also talk about how um, she had um, an established relationship with somebody named Dennis Highland. And I think the stuff that you guys actually want to hear about, what happened to Sherry Jo Bates? Well, in the episode Unsolved No More, three possibilities were proposed and explored. The first is that it was Sherry Jo Bates' ex-boyfriend, not the Zodiac Killer, not any type of prolific serial killer, but Sherry Jo Bates' ex-lover, whom we'll call Bob Barnett. I noticed that Ken Maines wouldn't even say that name because that's an alias. That's not his real name. He is often referred to as Bob Barnett online. He simply called him BB, but I'll just say Bob Barnett because I find that it's just a little bit easier to think of as a person. And as I... As I understand Ken's analysis of this, it was that Sherry Jo Bates was in a serious relationship with somebody named Dennis Highland, who did not live in Riverside but in Northern California. However, their relationship was rather serious, even to the point where Dennis Highland proposed and Sherry Jo Bates had accepted. However, Ken Maines used the term, Sherry Jo was living a double life. And I didn't quite like that because I don't see I didn't see an ounce of evidence to say that she was living a double life. What he was actually talking about was she was still seeing her ex-boyfriend, Bob Barnett, who was somewhat of a deviant person. He even referred to him as a criminal youth, got in trouble for auto theft, and also he was a poor student in school, and he bothered the teachers. He just seems like an overall deviant personality. But what was really interesting was that all of Bob Barnett's friends, um, I shouldn't say all of them, at least five or six of Bob Barnett's friends were aware that Bob Barnett and Sherry Jo were still seeing each other, even though she had this other relationship with Dennis Highland. But none of Sherry Jo Bates's friends were aware of that. And I, I don't really think that that's living a double life. I think that she was discreetly cheating on her boyfriend, and perhaps that is a more established way of putting it. And this brings us to the motive for the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, that if this were Bob Barnett, if he did hypothetically murder Sherry Jo Bates, he is involved in an on-again, off-again relationship with her. They're having a casual relationship, but Bob Barnett is getting off on the power tripping, partnered with his deviant behavior, and partnered with his prone to crim prone behavior to criminal activity, his nature to criminal activity, rather, then he was very upset when she was trying to get over him. She wants to get engaged to Dennis Highland. She wants to just leave him. She wants to end whatever type of discreet love affair they were having, and he didn't accept the result. So he waited for her to come out of the library, and he attacked her. But there are a couple problems with that. Number one, the absolute biggest takeaway from the episode Unsolved No More was that there was a hair on Sherry Jo Bates's hand, right around her thumb. The exact term that Ken Maines used was on the webbing of her hand, where, where the thumb goes into the palm, 
on that webbing, there was a hair that was pressed into the blood. And he said almost certainly that hair was from the suspect. DNA comparison was done between Bob Barnett and that hair, and it wasn't him. Now, some people think that Bob Barnett had an accomplice and that there were two people who attacked Sherry Jo Bates. And I don't even want to say too much about that because that's going to be going on a wild goose chase. But I will point out that things like that do happen. I always go back to this episode of Meet Mary Murder where somebody was involved in a very similar situation, except it was his wife, not his lover. And he enlisted the help of a friend to have her murdered. And they asked the question on the show, what kind of person would participate in a murder just because a friend asked them to? And they answered their own question one who is easily susceptible to manipulation. So I shouldn't dismiss that theory. In fact, I'm not going to dismiss this two-person team theory, but I don't think that um, I can talk about it too much without making certain types of assumptions, so we'll save that for a later date. But there are a couple problems with this theory that Bob Barnett murdered Sherry Jo Bates. Again, her ex-lover may be a discreet relationship that she had, a relationship that she was trying to keep hidden from everybody, but Bob Barnett didn't seem to mind talking to other people about it. The first problem is that hair didn't match DNA, and okay, there's there's forensic evidence against him being the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates. The second is, nobody heard any type of argument beforehand, and Ken Maines pointed out that it is very normal for somebody to get into a confrontation with a person whom they are familiar with before attacking them, not simply just walking up and starts stabbing her without saying anything. Absolutely not. And I completely agree with that. Anything's possible. I mean, you don't have to follow a rule book if you're a killer, but anything is possible. And I do um, agree, though, that it would be more likely that he would at least say something to Sherry Jo Bates, whether it was, would have been a premeditated murder or he just snapped in the heat of the moment for, for one second and just grabbed the knife that was in his pocket for some reason. No matter what, though, I think that there would have been a very loud exchange that more witnesses would have heard. And yes, this, this was a statement made by Ken Maynes. I just happen to agree with it, just giving him credit for his um, commentary. And the third problem is that her car was disabled, that there was indeed a single wire that was pulled from the distributor. Some people often use the term distributor coil, but um, I really didn't have anything to do with cars in 1966 because I wasn't born, nor in the 1970s, nor the early 1980s. I was born in 1988, and what Ken Baines talked about with his own first-hand experience was that cars were a lot simpler back then, and he even put an engine into, um, or I think he said a motor, into one of his um, own vehicles, and he's not a car person, but he was able to do that as a teenager doing the work himself, and things are a lot more complicated now. So it, you really wouldn't need a large amount of auto knowledge to learn how to disable the Volkswagen bug that Sherry Joe Bates would have been driving. But that is also completely unnecessary if Bob Barnett was someone who was familiar with Sherry Joe Bates. And, I mean, he could just walk up to her, hey, Sherry Joe, um, and she would recognize him, and he would have a reason to talk to her no matter what. 
and there would it wouldn't be there wouldn't be any reason to disable her car again i mean anything's possible and criminals don't always follow the rules in fact they do the exact opposite but that's one theory that she's murdered by bob barnett who is not only an ex-lover but it looks like she was actually having some type of current love affair with him and it makes perfect sense in theory but not in practice she wants to cut it off and he doesn't want to accept the result so he attacks her and it, it's all over and done with right I found the counterclaims to be a little bit more convincing. The second theory involving the death of Sherry Jo Bates is, again, not a Zodiac theory, but rather that it was an attempted abduction that simply went wrong because Sherry Jo Bates fought back or the perpetrator got scared or that for some reason the abduction was unsuccessful, that somebody was trying to abduct Sherry Jo Bates as she was leaving the RCC library at um, approximately 9 p.m. and that um, some guy was trying to lure her into his vehicle or get her to go somewhere so he could sexually assault her or perhaps even just murder her at a different location. And she fought back. She didn't want to go along. So it turned into a violent struggle and she was uh, stabbed multiple times and that led to her death. But that would just be an opportunistic predator, somebody who had been stalking her. And the third uh, theory that was discussed was this was the Zodiac Killer. This was a sloppy, less experienced Zodiac who decided to murder Sherry Jo Bates because um, even though the Zodiac Killer did not ever target a single female in 1968 and 69 to the best of our knowledge, there are also... Um, there is the possibility there are very strong linguistic similarities to the communications that were written after the Bates murder. But here's a big problem, though. If Bob Barnett is your suspect in the Sherry Jo Bates case, that is that the Riverside Confession that was mailed in November of 1966, the one that says, Miss Bates was stupid, she went to the slaughter like a lamb, she was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. I'm just throwing out some random sentences. It talks about how the person pulled the wire from the distributor, or the, um, the cable, she pulled that part out of the distributor, so he disabled the car. But the reason why he did that was Sherry Jo Bates was specifically targeted because... She was not his lover because he wanted to make her pay for the brush-offs that she had given him in the past, meaning that he knew Sherry Jo Bates, but he was not romantically involved with her. Granted, though, that has nothing to do with the Zodiac Killer. It doesn't say that I'm going to attack couples in lovers' lanes and I'm going to um, go after a taxi driver and then I'm going to go after people when I'm wearing a hooded costume. That doesn't say anything about being the Zodiac. The linguistic similarities are very, very specific, though. It's like using words such as twitch and squirm, but misspelling the word twitch, T-W-I-C-H. Those things are present, and they are very strong linguistic similarities to what the Zodiac Killer would do later on. But in terms of a relationship at face value, Bob Barnett was involved with Sherry Jo Bates, and the author of the Riverside Confession is saying that she was murdered because he was not romantically involved with her. So that's a big inconsistency, and then you're going to have to do some mental gymnastics or just say that, oh yeah, yeah, well he wrote it, he's just lying because he wants to confuse the authorities. Assumption, assumption, assumption. So um, I think that out of these three, 
I'm going with the failed abduction theory that it was an opportunistic predator and that he uh, that he was trying to get Sherry Joe into his car and his vehicle and he was going to take her to a different location for a sinister purpose but it was not um, successful and you guys know very well that I do not believe Sherry Joe Bates was murdered by the Zodiac killer. Now did the Zodiac write the Riverside Confession? There's a high chance, I'm not convinced. I mean but I will state one thing again for the record. I absolutely believe the Zodiac Killer was intensely familiar with the murder of Sherry Jo Bates about the newspaper articles, or probably you had read the confession many times, knew about the Bates had to die letters that were signed with a Z. Some way, somehow, they were able to determine that there were indeed more evidence that would suggest that there was a second participant in the stabbing, which I'm, I, I haven't seen any evidence that would suggest that. I would definitely entertain the Bob Barnett theory more. However, what do you think out of these three possibilities? Do you think that she was murdered by Bob Barnett? Do you think that she was murdered by an opportunistic predator? Or do you think that she was murdered by the Zodiac Killer? And there's one possibility that I used to talk about on the channel that I haven't mentioned in a, in a very long time, is that there was a suspicious character named Ross Sullivan who was in the RCC library who really bothered people, who was known for writing dark, creepy poetry, and as I said, the desktop poem was found. And some people think that Ross Sullivan murdered Sherry Jo Bates, but he did not commit the Zodiac crimes. Ross was also mentally unstable. He spent time in Patton State Mental Hospital. He reportedly had schizophrenia. So is that could be a fourth one. What do you think happened to Sherry Jo Bates? And you can put your ideas in the comment section down below. And right now, I will share some things with you guys about the book Profile by Mark Hewitt. Last week, I was talking about the book Hunted by Mark, who is um, author of Hunted, Profiled, and Exposed, these three books about the Zodiac Killer. And the book Profiled is going to get into the psychology of the case, which is something that I love to talk about in all forms of true crime. And if you do read the book Profiled by Mark Hewitt, the first 78 pages are about other serial killers. It's doing uh, just an overall general discussion on serial killers, talking about everybody from John Wayne Gacy to Ted Bundy, as well as even the Phantom Killer from 1946, and some other true crime cases that I hadn't heard about. And I did read it, but I went through it in somewhat of a breeze read because I wanted to get to the Zodiac-related parts, but I'm definitely going to go back and perhaps use that material for an Anything Goes Friday segment in the future, because I would love to just really go through it step by step and even read up on some of these cases that I wasn't familiar with, such as the Texas Tower Sniper. I had never heard about that one before reading Mark Hewitt's profile. And I just want to learn more about the psychology of serial killers and to talk about it with you guys here on the show, because what drives people to kill? This is something that we truly want to know and understand. What drives people to commit these heinous actions? And what exactly are the elements of society that are responsible for it. But with the discussions in Profiled, I would like to focus this segment on the Lake Herman Road murders, the first confirmed crime of the Zodiac Killer, which occurred on December 20th of 1968, which saw the deaths of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen. Now, they were sitting in a car, 
in a parking lot that was off of Lake Herman Road, which is a back road between Benicia and Vallejo, California. And when I was reading Mike Rodelli's book, The Hunt for Zodiac, it actually states that it, that part of Lake Herman Road is neither in Benicia nor Vallejo. It is actually an, an unincorporated area. So they're more or less in a secluded area, but does have a road that has lots of traffic, particularly from cars that were driven by workers from one of the plants nearby. So some people think that they were ordered out of the car by a perpetrator carrying a gun, a 22 caliber pistol that had a flashlight taped to the gun barrel and that they were told to stand and face the road and that possibly David Faraday was shot first and then Betty Lou was gunned down. But there's a question that is asked in the book profiled. Why didn't the Zodiac Killer make a phone call or take credit for the murder in some way immediately after it happened? The Zodiac Killer doesn't take credit for the crimes until after the Blue Rock Springs shooting on July 4th of 1969. Why didn't he leave something behind at the scene, such as the circle with the cross going through it? Bear in mind that David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen would have most likely been dead in the killer's mind. I mean, he wouldn't have known their vital signs or anything like that, but he thought that he had killed them, and ultimately, he did. He could have just pulled out that felt-tip pen that he loved so much and drawn a circle with a cross going through it on the car door, and then disappeared into the night. Or how about making a phone call after it, the way that the Zodiac did two previous times on uh, July 5th of 1969 when he made the phone call, as well as on September 27th of 1969 after the Lake Berryessa stabbing, he also made a phone call. Why not? And more importantly, why not write a letter taking credit for it? Because it's not until August 4th of 1969 that we see this is the Zodiac speaking in a letter. And I can attempt to answer that, and even though I'll talk about some of Mark Hewitt's observations in a second, my own original observation is that I believe the Zodiac Killer was also intensely familiar with Jack the Ripper. And Jack the Ripper doesn't write a letter until after the second crime as well, the Dear Boss letter. Now, is that one authentic or not? Who knows? But in the common knowledge marketplace, a lot of people would think that that's the first Jack the Ripper letter, and no matter what theory you're going with, single perpetrator theory, Ripper hoax theory, that's the first time the Ripper announces himself to the world, and that was after the second crime. So I think that the Zodiac could have heavily been inspired by Jack the Ripper, but the stuff that Mark Hewitt talks about were that, okay, maybe this is still a younger and inexperienced serial killer, and that this is somebody who was perhaps trying to fuel some type of urge, because from talking to Mark Hewitt later on, um, when I interviewed him for Black Box Online Radio, as well as the Zodiac Killer Channel's interview with the Experts series, then we had a chance to discuss this, and what he said was that a lot of people wouldn't think that the Zodiac Killer was a sexually motivated serial killer, but some sexually motivated serial killers do not physically assault the victims. And an example of this would be 
Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, of course. I knew, You guys knew I was going to say that one. And um, Dr. Todd Grante also talked about how David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Shooter, in some theories outside of Maury Terry's world, was also a sexually motivated serial killer who did not assault the victims with sexual force. So, with the Zodiac, he may have been trying to fuel some type of urge or need that wasn't done so much like an impulse, like the way that most people have the urges, or most serial killers have the urges, rather, like the ones who go after prostitutes, and they'd want to do it, like, as every chance they get. I mean, they would do it every day if they thought they could get away with it. Instead, there's a sexual component, but it isn't about the physicality. It isn't about the intimacy. There is something about a power-driven, power-oriented, power-assertive personality that is trying to dominate the victims. And after the Lake Harmon murders, the killer was satisfied that the urge was satiated and there was not a desire to do anything else to fuel his excitement and this is why i really want to uh, do a future episode talking about um the introduction to profile because these elements of serial psycho serial killer psychology cannot be stated enough serial killers do things to fuel their own excitement and this is a very big theory that mark hewitt even talks about in profile about how Serial killers will just try to do something more and more intense. Now, how would the Zodiac killer do that? Firstly, by getting closer to the victims, but um, also about how he would try to alter the pattern, such as, firstly, murdering David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen at Lake Huron Road. Secondarily, going after Mike Michaud and Darlene Farron, and now making a phone call. Okay, then the Zodiac starts writing taunting letters. Then the Zodiac dresses up in a costume and, st and stabs the victims, as opposed to shooting them, even though fully well he could have shot the victims at Lake Berryessa. Then the Zodiac killer murders a taxi driver and cuts off a piece of his bloody shirt, and then walks away in a populated area of San Francisco in the Presidio Heights neighborhood when Paul Stein was murdered. All of these things are done to fuel the excitement. It's making the behavior riskier and riskier, and also dressing up like a character. And I'm really tempted to say that this person was having fun with it, but I'm really not quite sure because I don't really know if serial killers actually have fun with their activities. What it sounds like they're doing is trying to um, unleash destruction on society because they feel that their chances at being part of society were destroyed at an early age. And I always go back to the old proverb, the child who is not loved by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. I mean, you'll encounter that all the time. Ray Bradbury even wrote about this in Dandelion Wine. I did a whole episode called Ray Bradbury on serial killers once when he said that a serial killer is a child in an adult's body without love, and I totally ruined that. Let me try again. A serial killer is a child without love being forced to live in an adult's body. That one was a little bit better. And yes, you can hear that little um, black box recording that I did back in 2019. That was actually the first time that I started doing some mini-episodes on um, the channel where I would just do like nine or ten minute podcast recordings, which were usually done as follow-ups because with that particular one, I talked about John Wayne Gacy, and then I was reading the book 
Farewell Summer. Oh my goodness, that quotation, um, that quotation is not from Dandelion Wine, it's from Farewell Summer, because I was reading the book Farewell Summer by Ray Bradbury, and that I encountered that quotation, and coincidentally I thought that it was very relevant to the episode that I had just done on John Wayne Gacy, so I included it in the episode. You see, that was three years ago, and a lot of the guys that I've talked to on the Zodiac Killer channel's interview with the Experts series tell me that I'm a little bit younger than they are. They say once you get older into their 40s and 50s, you start to forget things. I'm 34, and as you see, I'm already forgetting things that happened from three years ago. I also do not ever remember what I had for breakfast, so I guess that's somewhat normal for people of all ages, but you know, once, once time passes, you really do start to forget all of these things, and I hope that some way, somehow, I can go back and listen to old Black Box online radio episodes to try and get in touch with all of the material. But enough about that. I would like to ask you guys that same question that was that was posed in the book Profiled. Why didn't the Zodiac Killer take credit for the Lake Herman Road murders immediately after it happened? Nobody knew the Zodiac Killer existed at the time, could have made a phone call. Nobody knew that the Zodiac was going to do anything, could have written a letter. Nobody even had heard of the Zodiac Killer. He hadn't announced himself to the world. Why didn't he take credit for the murders immediately, and he waited seven months to do so? And do you agree with my assessment that it's... um? It was an, an inspiration of Jack the Ripper. Do you agree with Mark Hewitt's assessment of it that it was the um, that it the killer's excitement had been fueled enough, for lack of a better term? It took me about seven or eight minutes to say that one sentence. Amazing, right? But there's also something very interesting in Profiled that talks about the psychology of the Zodiac Killer, because, as I said, I've interviewed Mark Hewitt for the Zodiac Killer Channel's interview with the Expert series, and he talks about how he is a genuine believer that the Zodiac Killer also committed the 1966 murder of Sherry Jo Bates. And he talks about how Sherry Jo Bates was murdered on October 30th of that year, and that is right before Halloween. Her body was actually found on Halloween morning in the early a.m. hours. And some people think that there is a type of witchcraft or demonic or some type of connection to the occult, because Halloween, as Mark Hewitt writes in Profiled, is also referred to as Devil's Night by some. And the Zodiac Killer frequently talked about a particular place, Mount Diablo. And, I mean, some people even refer to one of the Zodiac's codes as the Mount Diablo Code. And... This um, bring, ties into some things that have been expressed by Michael Cole, who is the author of the Zodiac Revisited trilogy, and he wrote that the Zodiac is not only obsessed with the devil in terms of Mount Diablo, but the Lake Herman Road murders that occurred on December 20th of 1966, 1968, excuse me, were right before the winter solstice. December 20th is right before December 21st the darkest day of the year, the epitome of darkness in the hemisphere. So, the Zodiac is trying to say that he is even more sinister, more evil, and more vicious than the devil. He wants to be on top of Devil's Mountain. He wants to be committing a crime on the darkest day of the year. And there's a very similar uh, paragraph that is written in the book Profiled, 
and I was reminded of other stuff that I had read in Michael Cole's books. So I think that this is something that I'm going to explore in the future, and it could be possible. However, as of now, I still have to make the harsh verdict and say that Sherry Jo Bates was not a victim of the Zodiac Killer. But let's see what um, we can find in the future, and part of me is just really hoping that one day there will be some type of breakthrough, whether it's DNA or some type of forensic material will be discovered that will give us a definitive answer about whether or not Sherry Jo Bates was a Zodiac victim, but more importantly, who was responsible for her crime. I think by now that almost certainly the perpetrator would not be brought to justice, but I do thank Mark Hewitt for his stuff in Profiled. And right now I would like to go to some different material from a case that I have never truly talked about before. I have to give a shout-out to Wildfire99, also known as Kelly Gable, who sent me some stuff about the murder of Donna Marie Frisley. And I was actually able to go over to newspapers.com and find an article that had been written in the Argus Leader, and it says, Former Canton girl, age 14, slain in California. Canton, South Dakota, the body of former... Canton girl was found Tuesday in a shallow grave near Palmdale, California, after she had been missing from her job eight days from a babysitting job. She was Donna Marie Frisley, who attended elementary school at Canton five years ago, where her parents were in business. The girl had been stabbed in the back, her throat had been slashed, and she had been buried under a pile of loose desert. Donna Marie Frisley received her name because she was the daughter of Don Frisley and Marie Frisley, who were divorced on February 2nd. Frizzly, who resides in Los Angeles, once managed a clothing store at Canton. Mrs. Frizzly, who lives at Lancaster, California, is the daughter of the Reverend and Mrs. John F. Saarinen Dassel from Minnesota. She was discovered in the Mojave Desert when a prospector noticed a shoe protruding out of a heap of sand, according to the Associated Press. As far as it appears, she was not sexually molested, said Floyd Rosenberg, Sheriff's Department of Detectives. Her clothes were not disarrayed. Tracks noted, and investigators found tire tracks that were leading from the scene six miles from the nearest main road. The body was found 22 miles east of Palmdale, which is 50 miles north of Los Angeles. The above-ground grave was 30 miles from the house where Donna Marie was babysitting. Clues were sparse in the home. A radio was overturned. The girl's right shoe was on the floor. Relatives of Don Frisley are residents of Canton. A brother, John, is associated with the Soil Conservation Office. His sister, Mrs. Don Anderson, is the wife of a funeral home and furniture store operator. The Frisleys are parents of three other children. And it goes on for a while, but as far as uh, Donna Frisley goes, um, I think that there are some major similarities and major differences with that of the Zodiac Killer. Firstly, she was abducted and murdered, but she was not sexually assaulted. And even with the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, as well as the other five victims, no one was sexually assaulted, especially not the women at Lake Berryessa or Blue Rock Springs or Lake Herman Road. And if those had all been planned as opportunistic sexual abductions, I think that at least one of them would have been successful. But something that is quite different with the Zodiac Killer is that 
the bodies were not buried. And this is one of the reasons why Dr. Todd Grande even said that the Zodiac Killer is low in neuroticism, because he murdered the victims, but did not make any attempt to conceal the remains of the victims, whereas somebody such as the Long Island serial killer would be average in neuroticism, like average in worrying about the events, because this person really went to some length to hide the body of Donna Marie Frisley, such as burying her in some of the shallow sand. But there is a podcast recording about her on the channel Wildfire 99, and I should also report that this was, um, this occurred in 1962, so some people think that this is even one of the earlier, earlier crimes of the Zodiac Killer, and it was actually in, uh, February of that year, so it would have been before the murder of Ray Davis, and some people think that there was, that there were, as I said, pre-Zodiac activities and pre-pre-Zodiac activities, but also the family that, um, Donna Marie Frisley was babysitting for, was named Christensen. That was their last name. And when as I was listening to Kelly Gable's recording on the channel Wildfire 99, I knew that he was going to make a connection to something that I learned about from him, and that is the story of Kelly Cook, who was murdered outside of Standard, Alberta, and she was abducted by a man named Bill Christensen. And I think that Kelly is um, going down the pathway of looking at how there is a very prolific serial killer who is leaving all types of signatures and connections and clues, and you can take that for what you will. I mean, I'm not the biggest believer in those types of theories, but um, I definitely do get curious about them from time to time. And one more time, his channel is Wildfire99. And right now, I would like to get to your shoutouts on buymeacoffee.com. Anybody who makes a contribution or donation to the show will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays, and anything that is donated to the show will be spent on things such as equipment or true crime books to talk to you guys about. And the first one comes to us from Floyd Black 53 who says, For you and your voice, LOL, have a productive week and be safe. Hey, thank you so much, Floyd Black 53 Your consistent support is greatly appreciated. And we also had one that came in on the YouTube page from Aaron Aragon, who said, Just got home, been waiting for your episode on the Phantom Killer and the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. By the way, Ned, I just bought a couple of t-shirts from the Teespring page. Hope that helps the channel. I tried the coffee thing. Don't understand it. Confusing. Well, um... Aaron, I definitely appreciate your support all the same, and yes, indeed, there is the Teespring page where you can get the t-shirts, the coffee mugs, and even some of those wonderful Black Box on Audio hoodies. So, there was also a very interesting comment that was left by Hamid, which was not one of the contributions, but I think that it deserves some Zodiac attention because it asks a particular challenge question. And Hamid wrote into the last Zodiac Killer news report by saying, Hello, Ned. Thanks for this episode. I have two questions. Number one, at what point do you believe it would be reasonable to give up on this case altogether until it gets solved by a big stroke of luck, like the Golden State Killer case or the BTK case? Number two, are you of the opinion that the Zodiac was never a known suspect? Because I found myself over the years moving from one favorite suspect to another, but never felt close to the actual culprit. Um, as far as question one, at what point do I think it would be reasonable to give up on the case? Um, never, I suppose. I will keep talking about it as long as I so choose, because 
at this point, I've recognized that I am not an investigator, I don't work with the FBI, and I am not someone who has first-hand access to the materials. I mean, even on Unsolved No More, Ken Maines was talking about how the detective in the Sherry Joe Bates case provided him incorrect information on where Sherry Joe Bates' car was parked, and he was like, either the guy intentionally misled me because he didn't want to, me to know the truth, or he genuinely didn't know where Sherry Joe Bates' car was parked before she was murdered. And it is so hard to get the narrative right when you're in the general public and you become suspect, or you become subject to all of the myths that are surrounding a true crime case. And Robert Graysmith, of all people, really did not do the general public a strong service with his book Zodiac from 1986. Yes, he created some new curiosity about the case, and that's why a lot of us are following it to this day. He left an impact, but he also provided a lot of misleading information and some statements that were flat-out untrue, and that's why I think it's always great when Drew Beeson uses the word graysmithing, meaning splicing together two ideas that do not necessarily belong together. But I think that as long as I want to talk about the Zodiac Killer, I will. I've really decided that perhaps just reading a bunch of things on the internet and watching a bunch of YouTube videos won't lead to a complete, solid, and reliable pathway to making some type of groundbreaking discovery. I mean, yeah, watching a bunch of YouTube videos will allow you to solve a murder mystery that's been going on for 50-some-odd years, right? Wrong. No, most likely it won't, but there are definitely aspects of the case that we are curious about, and Jordan Peterson, the psychologist of all people, said that... There are too many facts. That's why we have to talk to each other. So, um, I think that's... At what point would I give up on this? Only, um... No, never. Never, really, I think, is my answer. But to the second question posed by Hamid, are you of the opinion that the Zodiac was never a known suspect? Because I found myself over the years moving from one favorite suspect to another, but never felt close to the actual culprit. Well, I definitely did that in the past. If you go back and listen to the old black box recordings from 2019 and so on, I was just looking at all the famous suspects like Richard Gajkowski, Ross Sullivan, Lawrence Kane, Arthur Lee Allen, and I thought that they were suspects for very solid reasons, and I ultimately came to the decision that I didn't think any of the major suspects were the Zodiac Killer. Looking at Geik and Allen and Kane and Sullivan and just finding problems with all of them, and I'm like, well, what on earth do I do now? And the, sh the long and short of it was that I began looking in different directions, and began thinking about the case in different ways. And as you'll see with the episodes that I've done on the Long Island serial killer and the Phantom Killer, I really begin to talk more about the victims and the crime scenes, as opposed to just going through the lists of suspects over and over again, which is um perhaps not the best way to even try to understand a murder mystery. Okay, but you want to ask something about time frames. Last year, I was a regular listener of the Tate LaBianca radio program, which is hosted by Brian Davis and Tana Laufenberg, and Brian Davis said that to follow a true crime case, it takes four years to learn who the people are, right? And I don't think he was talking about the people's names. You can probably learn the names in about a year, I think he meant it takes four years to learn not only who everybody is, 
but is this person a truth teller or are they a liar? And um, I definitely have found that to be true for not only what he was talking about, but the Zodiac case as well. One more time, he hosted the Tate LaBianca radio program talking about Charles Manson and the family. Last shout out I would like to give is to Professor Japanese 007, who says Ned should be in on the new Peacock Zodiac show. People put me to sleep with the handwriting with no tracking down of any type of gun. I can't comment too much on that, but I definitely would like to uh, agree with your statement there. Ned should be in on the Zodiac show that's going to be available on Peacock in the near future. And thank you so much for that uh, compliment, Professor Japanese 007. And right now I would like to just stick around and chat with you guys for a little bit about some other true crime cases out there. Because there was something that I, that I totally confess is not Zodiac related. Again, just uh, something that I've done on the channel in the past. And that is when I did an episode on the disappearance of William Higgins from 1969. May, may I just say, 1969 was perhaps the craziest year of the last 100 years. Everything that um, always seems to come back to the year 1969, it really is quite odd. Well, maybe let's blame the CIA and get it over with. But firstly, um, I have to give a shout-out to Bruce, whom I've been corresponding with a lot. And Bruce is actually the son of William Higgins, and we began talking about the Zodiac Killer. And then he mentioned to me that his father is a missing person, and that he asked me if I would do an episode or just share some info on BBO Bar about his father's disappearance. And I said yes, but William Higgins disappeared in 1969, and Bruce had this theory that his... Um, car would have been taken from him, or his vehicle rather, it's a truck, not a car, and it would have been submerged in a nearby river in Pennsylvania, and that William Higgins may have actually been murdered by Bruce's new stepfather at the time, but he sent me an article from CBS News that talks about an update in the disappearance of William Higgins. Officials were called to McKeesport boat launch after a car was found in the river on Wednesday outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The incident occurred at the bottom of Rebecca Street. No word yet from the officials if anyone was inside the vehicle. Two men found the vehicle and alerted the authorities. The men were a part of a nationwide underwater search and recovery team and were using sonar in an attempt to locate a vehicle involved in a 50-year-old case at the request of the family. And the car, that that is when they came across the submerged car. We were in town searching for Bill Higgins, a cold case from 50 years ago, last seen in a 55 Chevy blue truck. It was a long shot because it's such an old case, and we were hoping to find him today, and we ended up finding a Chevy Equinox instead, said Adam Brown. Higgins, a McKeesport man, went missing 50 years ago without a trace. We were out here searching the waterways using sonar technology, trying to find vehicles, specifically his truck, Brown said. The men said that they found the vehicle, the windows were down, and the keys were in the ignition. This case sounds like it was 95% stolen. But... 95% of the time as well, we just find stolen vehicles, but it's still something that is polluting the waterways. And um, I really just give credit to them for investigating the disappearance of William Higgins. Bruce, as I said, is the son of Bill Higgins, and he had no idea that the search um, 
divers were doing anything about this, and this was written by Erica Stanish, just citing the source from CBS Pittsburgh, and it was updated on July 20th of 2022. Again, um, I, Bill Higgins, the son, uh, sorry, Bruce Higgins, the son of Bill Higgins, had no idea that this was going down, so that it really was quite odd to me. And the final thing that I would like to talk to you about on this news report is an unrelated true crime event, and that is the Benoit murders that were involving Chris Benoit as well as the murders of his wife Nancy and their son Daniel. A double murder-suicide that has just seen its 15-year anniversary, and that was several weeks ago. I was really debating on doing an episode or not about the Benoit murders, and I've talked a lot about them on the channel in the past, particularly in 2019 and 2020, but so many factors drove Chris Benoit, a beloved WWE wrestler, to murder his wife and son, and some people think that Firstly, he had CTE. Secondarily, he had a horrible, busy schedule with the wrestling world. And not only the CTE, but other types of brain damage where he could have suffered all kinds of WWE injuries and they weren't treated properly. And not only that, but drugs and pain medication and just being overworked partnered with perhaps some pre-existing mental conditions, drove somebody to a very horrendous breaking point. And there was a video on YouTube that featured the WWE manager and promoter Paul Heyman, where he was responding to someone who was talking about Chris Benoit and saying that they defended him and that Chris Benoit should not have been found guilty, or he shouldn't be viewed as someone who did something wrong because he should be viewed as a mentally ill person or somebody who was a victim of CTE. But the simple response from Paul Heyman was that he still had awareness of his faculties. He strangled his son to death by using, by using a wrestling choke, and he most likely strangled his wife Nancy to death by kneeling on her back and putting his hands around her neck, and then he committed suicide by hanging himself from the weight set in his home. And very clearly, he still had a conscious choice. And then what Paul Heyman said, though, I think was um, rather different than a lot of the takes on the subjects involving the Benoit murders, because he said, though, Chris Benoit was perhaps one of the top five best wrestlers in the WWE. Some people, such as Chris Jericho, even said that he was the number one best technical wrestler in the entire World Wrestling Entertainment brand, including ECW at the time. And, I mean, I don't think anybody doubts what he did in the ring. But what Paul Heyman then followed up with was, if you are going to defend him and his actions outside of the ring... F you, because he very simply said that the man murdered his wife and son, and he had the ability not to. And this is what lawyers talk about all the time in the courtroom. In the true crime world, we hear about this all the time, that somebody has the ability to stop. They have the ability to say no. They weren't undergoing a psychotic episode. They had the ability to choose what they were doing. And 
if somebody deliberately murders someone for any type of reason, because there's an argument that got out of control, or there is some type of uh, tragedy that happens and the person just snaps and loses his awareness of their of their actions for a second, they still have the ability to stop. They still have the ability to let go and to take a step back, and they they are expected to be able to control their types of behavior. So I definitely have to agree with that, but a lot of people just were so heartbroken about what happened with the Benoit murders back in 2007 because... As I said, Chris Benoit was not a wrestler that people didn't like. Everybody loved him. And then there was this shocking news that um, really rattled the WWE world. But, as I said, Chris Jericho was a friend of um, Benoit's, and he appeared on on television doing several interviews after the Benoit murders. And what he said was, I love the man, but I hate what he did. And... I think that Paul Heyman's response is a little bit more brutal, but it's, there's also a sense of honesty in that, that no matter how much people liked the guy, he did something terrible. And just um, in the comments section on that episode, somebody brought up a quotation from what they said was sports night. I haven't um, watched that program, but they said was, sometimes you have to separate the stuff from the stuff. Oh, no, I don't think it was Sports Night. I think it was Night Court, they said. Another program, which I haven't watched. Only a few clips on YouTube. But the quote, Sometimes you have to separate the stuff from the stuff. And that is something that perhaps not all of us want to hear. But I think that there is a certain way that you can um, recognize that he was a talented performer. But he did something absolutely horrible, and perhaps he was concealing his dark side for several years. And I even had a discussion about this with somebody in the comments section down below um, on a different episode when we were talking about the Steve Wilkos show, and someone said that no matter what someone is experiencing mentally, unless they're going through a psychotic episode, they have the ability to seek mental health treatment on their own, but they're actively choosing not to, and they're choosing to commit these types of destructive actions. And the final reason why I wanted to bring this one up was because I was talking about this on the Anything Goes Friday segment when I brought up Jake Davison, who was the Plymouth shooter in the United Kingdom, who murdered um, at least five people with a pump-action shotgun. And he um, also was somebody who was dealing with mental health issues. Absolutely, nobody disputes that. But what is most likely in dispute is that the way that he chose to deal with them, instead of trying to do something to improve his life, he just wanted to wallow in his own frustrations and let the problem get worse and worse. And they do say this about the brain, that the brain just directs you toward what is familiar, even if it is destructive. And that's bad, but it definitely happens. So no matter what, rest in peace to um, Nancy and Daniel Benoit, rest in peace to all the victims of the Zodiac Killer, and um, perhaps even to Bill Higgins himself, but I should point out one final note. There is an alternative theory about Bill Higgins, that he disappeared from Pennsylvania, and then he made his way into Canada, and he uh, 
actually robbed a bank and became a suicide bomber, because that one is the subject of the book The Devil's Cap by Joe Ralco, and I have an episode about that here on this channel. And in that book, um, the, the name that was used by the bomber was Higgins. And um, so that is something that has also been explored. So if you'd like to hear more about that, again, I have episodes on The Disappearance of Bill Higgins, uh, The Devil's Cap by Joe Ralco, Canada's First Suicide Bomber, as well as a handful of black box recordings about the Benoit murders. And thank you so much to everyone who has listened to this episode here. And I really appreciate all of you guys in the comments section who contribute to the discussions. And that's all for me now. So anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there was always blackboxned88 on Instagram. And I'll see you over there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.